All right, good morning. Yeah, so I turn to the book of Acts. Uh, if you've got a copy of the Bible with you or on your phone or tablet, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. Uh, this morning we're looking at verses uh, 9 through 25. And uh, just before we, we start out with that, I just want to mention real quick, I know uh, if you're here this morning, you hopefully on your way in were handed an invite card uh, to Easter. And so did you get one? Can you, can you show me if you got one? Did you get one of these? I know it's hard to lift it up. You're so busy with your Bible and your Greek New Testament. Okay. And um, you also, the kids got one just for them. So exciting. So let me just encourage you uh, with Easter to, to really be intentional and pray uh, about who you might invite. Um, you know, no, invite them to come with you. And, and don't say no for them, but really be on mission and, 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 and have faith and see what God may do. I was, uh, you know, really a lot can, can take place from an invitation. A lot can happen after that. Of course, of course, outreach to people, you know, loving people and serving people is more, is more than inviting them to, to a service at our church. Of course it's more than that. Um, but, but it's not less than that. And on Easter, it's a great opportunity uh, to just exercise some faith and, and, and pray for and invite someone to come with you. Um, you know, I was uh, just thinking about the power of an invitation, and I was actually talking with a family uh, that's new at our church. And I was, I was having some time with them, some dinner, some fellowship, and I, I said to them, are you members yet? Because that's what I do. You look forward to dinner with me, right? Uh, are you members? Are you, are you guys members? And um, they were like, yeah, we are. It's like, okay. He was like, I was like, how did that happen? He said, well, my brother invited me. I was like, cool. He said, he said you have to come and see. You have to come and see just how amazing this is and how there is so much for the family here and, and you can get fed here, your whole family. And uh, anyways, the whole conversation was actually about Costco. <laughs> like, not even joking. I was asking him if he was a member at Costco. And he was telling me about how that happened. His brother invited him to show him like how amazing it was. And um, I would never just ask someone at dinner, are you a member of the church yet? But, uh, you know, I still was thinking, though, <laughs> about how that does apply. Because there is a lot that God can do in our lives and in the lives of our family. And part of that is inviting people uh, to come and see you know, just, just, just how great it is to have fellowship with one another and to worship the Lord together and to hear the word taught and all of that. So uh, we do have a few um, Easter yard signs uh, to just sort of point people to, to information on the Easter service. And so I've got a few of them left. And uh, if you'd be willing to take one and put it somewhere that's strategic, you know, we want to make the truth, beauty, and compassion of the gospel visible in our city, in our community, and on the campuses. And so, you know, if you think of a really strategic place to put one of these where it will be there, where it will stay there for a couple of weeks and just point people to the service, then please come and get one. We have a few. And if they don't all go, then our staff will put them up on Tuesday. So, um, <laughs> all right, let's get into Acts. Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 9 through 25. The uh, title of, of the message this morning is the first Christian, very intentional air quotes, Christian celebrity. The first Christian celebrity. So we are looking at Christian celebrities. All right. Not celebrity Christians. That's a different thing, right? 
That's a different thing. That's when we make certain Christians our little celebrity. That's different. Here we're talking about people or someone who became a Christian who was a celebrity. And this passage is very much about that this morning. Have you heard of a person named Brian Welch, nicknamed Head? He was the founding guitarist, one of the three founding members of the band Corn. And just a little bit about him because his story is interesting. You know, we're thinking about Christian celebrities. This rock band, which I don't know much about, but I just was reading his story this week. And I was, I was very encouraged. You know, they're from California. They formed in 1993, 40 million records, sold 12 top Billboard songs. You know, they were not just a band that your parents didn't want you listening to. They were a band that the Chicago Tribune said they were perverts, psychopaths, and paranoiacs. And if you were alive in the 90s, they were constantly being played in the late 90s on MTV with songs like Freak on a Leash and many others. So what happened? Why am I sharing about him? Well, in 2005, this person, Brian Welch, one of the founding guitarists, he dramatically converted to Christianity. And he quit the band. And this came after many failed attempts by him to quit drugs, to quit meth. And he came to faith in Christ very dramatically. And in a press release on their website in 2005, the band Korn announced, they said, and I quote, we've parted ways with Welch, who has chosen the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and will be dedicating his musical pursuits toward that end. And so, you know, this, it seems very real. And by all accounts, it is. Welch shared his testimony on stage at a church in his hometown the following Sunday. He was baptized in the Jordan River in Israel. A few weeks later, he flew there. He didn't quit the band because he had become a Christian. He quit the band to focus on raising his daughter, who'd already lost her mom to drugs. Anyways, the Corn the band members have spoken since about how furious they were about his conversion to Christ. And actually, years later, still a Christian, he rejoined the band as an outspoken Christian. And there are books and videos where you can learn more about his story. But the subject this morning, Christian celebrity, it's something that interests us. It does. You might say, well, I'm not interested in it. Well, you just said that. So there you go. That's the proof. You felt it was important to state that you're not interested in it. All righty, then, you are. So, you know, think about it. Celebrity names, Stephen Baldwin, Justin Bieber. You know, we're talking here about Christian celebrities. Of course, Kirk Cameron, the most important of them all. <laughs> Gary Busey, Kanye West. I spent, like, a lot of time on the Internet trying to figure out, is Kanye West, like, a real Christian? Like, why? Because we're curious. Some of you are like, well, talk to you after service, Matt. I'll let you know. I'll, tell you, I'll show you some links so you can see what I mean. It's a very, something we're curious about. Alice Cooper, Bob Dylan, Bubba Watson, Jane Fonda, George Foreman, Jeff Gordon, MC Hammer, Mr. T, Chuck Norris. 
you know, it's just, it's just these stories, celebrity Christians, they, they, they grab our attention because we want to know, we're wondering, is it real? Will it stick? Is it genuine? Are the motives pure? We're very curious about that. And so just as a trivia question, this morning I would ask you, who was the very first famous person who claimed to convert to Christianity? And today, this passage answers that question. This passage is about that person. It's not Paul. That's going to be on Easter Sunday. It's Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician was legit famous in Samaria and in the world at the time the book of Acts and the events here were happening. Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers from the second century, also from the region of Samaria, he said in his book, a famous book, First Apology, chapter 26, he said, there was a Samaritan, Simon, a native of the village called Gedo, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in your royal city of Rome did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the art of the devils operating in him. And almost all Samaritans and a few even other nations worship him. I share that with you so that you know that it's not just the story in the Bible, but there are many writers from this time who talked about how famous Simon was. There was a statue in Rome to honor him. Josephus talked about him. Eusebius, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, much more. People, you kind of probably haven't read, but I'm just telling you. Simon was famous. And this morning, we're going to see the story of him hearing the gospel and getting baptized. And here's the thing. As we look at this story, we're about to read it. As we look at this story, And as we look at really all the Samaritans who put their faith in Christ in this story, the question that we ask is whether we can know if true Christian faith was really present there. Is it real? Will it stick? Is true Christian faith really present? Doesn't it seem like that question would be a really helpful question to answer? Doesn't it seem like it would be helpful to be able to ask that question of ourselves? Does true Christian faith really present here in my life? Or to be able to ask that question of those whom we love, or to be able to ask that question and evaluate. Is true Christian faith really present? This morning in this passage, we're going to see our three points. There are going to be three signs that true Christian faith is present. So let me read to you Acts 8, 9 through 25, and, and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John 
who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Get me this power also, so that on anyone whom I lay my hands, they may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord and returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel, to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning to Fellowship Raleigh, Lord, to gather, to exalt Jesus through singing, to sing truth together. Lord, may we now have our minds and our hearts open to really consider the question, what are the signs, what are the evidences of true Christian faith? And Lord, may those of us that are truly followers of Christ seek to faithfully exhibit to the watching world what it looks like to be a true Christian. And may those of us, Lord, who are not yet true followers of Christ, Lord, protect us from self-deception, from thinking we're okay when we're not. So God, be with us as we study your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. The first Christian celebrity. So we're going to look here at three signs true Christian faith is present. We're going to look at that. And I, I really believe that we're, we're seeing exactly what Luke wants us to see in this passage. You know, I think Peter and John were coming to Samaria from Jerusalem to see if true Christian faith was present in Simon or in the Samaritans. I think Luke was writing this story to the early church so that the early church could see how true Christian faith had really spread, how it really was present. Anyways, three signs that true Christian faith is present. Number one, real power. Real power. That's a sign. Look again with me at verse 9. It says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. And so here's his testimony. This is his former life. It's talking about he previously practiced magic in the city where they are in Samaria and amazed the people of Samaria, saying, watch this, that he himself was somebody great. He's a a shameless self-promoter. He's retweeting all of his own tweets. He's like, hey, everyone, I'm great. He amazed people with his magic. He told them he was great. And so, verse 10, they all paid attention to him. Because that's that's exactly what happens, isn't it? They all paid attention to him. It says in the text, do you see? It says, from the least to the greatest. What does that mean? That means everyone. That means, like I was telling you, this guy was famous. 
Everyone from the least, the lowest in status to the greatest, the wealthy, the influential, everyone from the least to the greatest paid attention to this guy, to Simon. They said, this man is the power of God that is called great. And so you could see why Justin Martyr accurately told us how famous he was. And again, it's talking in verse 11 about the people of Samaria. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But when they believed Philip, because that's really what happened, isn't it? Philip came to Samaria because Stephen was martyred, a persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and so Christians were scattered. And Philip, one of the seven, one of the evangelists, he went to this place called Samaria, and he's there, and he's, he's opened up a ministry. He's praying for people. He's healing people. He's teaching about Christ. And so they believed Philip's message. They saw his signs and wonders. They believed what he was saying. What was he saying? Verse 12, it says he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. So it's really amazing. Philip came doing signs and wonders and preaching Jesus. Simon had already been there doing magic, signs and wonders, and preaching what? Preaching Simon. It's quite a contrast. Philip's ministry in Samaria, we're learning from these verses, was not just crowds and healings. There were men and women believing the good news about Jesus Christ and publicly professing their faith through the act of baptism. The gospel was changing a place by changing people. The gospel overpowered a powerful celebrity and spiritual leader in Samaria, and I do think it's important that we see that. Real power. Just think about what this text is telling us about Simon. It says he previously practiced magic. It said he amazed people, saying he was somebody great. It said from the least to the greatest, they paid attention to him. It says here that he believed. It even says it this way. It says even Simon himself believed. A hint of surprise there. It says he was baptized. He made the public profession of his belief. And it even says, and I want you to make sure you catch this in verse 13, that he continued with Philip. He didn't just believe, he didn't just get baptized and then sort of go back to whatever. He continued with Philip. He hung out with him. He was a disciple. He was hanging with Christians. Three signs true Christian faith is present. Here's the thing with this first point. I I really think God wants you to pause, and to really remember, to remember what it is that these Samaritans, and even Simon, to remember what it is that they realized on this day. Because you see what they realized, right? They realized as Philip came and preached Christ, as Philip came and did Christian ministry, they realized that Jesus Christ is more amazing that he is greater, that he is more worthy of promotion, more worthy of worship. He is more life-changing. He is more powerful than the very best thing the world has to offer, that 
those things, those best things, often do captivate us. But Jesus is better. I really do think Luke and God, through his word, wants us to pause and consider that. As the gospel moves into Samaria, where they have a very famous person doing very powerful works, Jesus is more powerful. Real power. The gospel moves in and crushes the competition. The people are like, magic what? Simon who? Even Simon hops in the Jordan River and gets baptized. True Christian faith is present when there is real power, gospel power. And I think in the midst of the busyness of life, all the problems we're trying to solve, all the work we're doing, all the discouragement that we sometimes feel, we need to remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ has real power to change lives for eternity. True Christian faith is present when there is real power. And second, when there is unexpected partnership through the Spirit. Unexpected partnership through the Spirit. So verses 14 through 17 provide our second point, and we're calling it unexpected partnership through the Spirit. You also could call this point the Samaritan Pentecost. Let me just show you the verses and let's try to understand them. This is a very important point. It says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem, and there is a map, and I do want to show you the distance between Jerusalem and Samaria, and you can see that it says here that the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, a scholar named Ian Howard Marshall, he says, and I quote, Verse 16 is the most extraordinary verse in all of the book of Acts. And I I share that with you because there's actually a lot of really weird verses in the book of Acts. (laughs) So that's a big statement. I'm going to read to you again verse 16. For he, that's the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. What is going on here? I mean, it's straightforward so far, right? Like Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. People are getting saved. The celebrities, like I believe, baptized me. All that's pretty straightforward. And then the apostles come up to see, to validate, to affirm, to minister to them as well. But verse 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on these Samaritan Christians. Why? This raises a question, and I want to ask this question right now. How does a Christian receive the Holy Spirit in their life? It's A or B. I want to just think this through with you for a moment, and it's going to feel for about three, five minutes here, three, two, five. How It's going to feel a little bit like a classroom. We've got to understand this. How does a Christian receive the Holy Spirit? A or B, okay? A, do they receive it later after one's salvation? By prayer. Do they receive the Holy Spirit that way? Or B, at the moment of one's belief 
and salvation. Which one is correct? Now, let's talk about A more. So with A, later, after one's salvation, the idea here is that the Spirit is received by prayer and the laying on of hands at a later point in one's Christian life, after one has already been a Christian. Okay? This is a view that many have. So you might look at this as a baptism in the Spirit. You might look at this in the Catholic Church as confirmation. You might look at this as a second stage in the Christian life. Many believe this. Paragraph 7 from the Assemblies of God Statement of Faith says, All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire. According to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, this was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. So, this is a view that people have. This is A. This is later, after one's salvation. And so is it that? How does a Christian receive the Holy Spirit? A or B? At the moment of one's belief in salvation. The Spirit is received, so we're talking more about B. At the moment when one becomes a Christian through repenting of their sins and trusting in the gospel of Jesus, death on the cross and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. So in that moment of faith, when they really become a Christian, God gives them the Holy Spirit. Is it B? Is it A or is it B? Well, it is B. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm going to tell you that it is B. That Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit is received in a Christian's life when they become a Christian. Now, that is not to say that people do not experience gigantic leaps of growth in their Christian walk that they might describe as what felt like a baptism in the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to Scripture, let me just show you three, three Scriptures. Look with me at Acts 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, This is earlier in Acts. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do we see here? We see Jesus says, here's what you all need to do. You need to repent and be baptized. And you'll receive two blessings, two gifts, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. He does not say you need to repent and be baptized and you'll receive forgiveness. And then you need to seek prayer from the apostles until you can receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't give two orders. He gives one. And it comes with two blessings. Look at the second verse, Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him, that is Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see Ephesians 1? It says, when, when, at the moment when you heard and when you believed, that is when you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Third verse, and we're almost done. And kind of the clincher. Romans 8 verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And this verse, just this verse alone, seems to make it impossible on a normal basis for someone to be like, hey, I'm one of his, I'm a Christian, I've already become a Christian, but I don't have the Spirit yet. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So here's the question. Now, this is the next question we have to ask. If the Bible teaches that it is me, which it does, and I say that humbly, I mean, this is not, like, we're not going to be so black and white and judge our brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on, get out of here. But if the Bible teaches that it is B, which it does, then how do we understand what happened in Acts chapter 8? Because that is what happened in Acts chapter 8. A happened in chapter 8. So what's the meaning of that? Why? How do we interpret that? What's the application of that? Why didn't the Holy Spirit fall on them at the moment they were saved and baptized under Philip's preaching of the gospel? Why? Do you know? Remember a couple of things. First of all, the book of Acts, as we are studying it, is to be taken descriptively, not always prescriptively. Okay? That means sometimes the book of Acts is telling us what happened. It's describing to us what happened to those Christians then. It's not always prescribing what needs to happen to every Christian right now today. That's one thing. But that's not it really. That's not the full answer to the question. And as we answer this question, here's where we get into this point too, which I think is a very powerful point this morning. Unexpected partnership through the Spirit. Consider how exceptional this moment was. And that, I think, is why God chose to do it this way. This was the first expedition of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Philip has gone to the Samaritans who were the Jewish half-breeds. They've been hated for hundreds of years, avoided at all costs. You recall the story in the Gospel of John, the woman at the well, where it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Like, why'd you have to do that? Well, he had to. Like, it is not a place you would want to go. The disciples come back, find him talking to the Samaritan woman, and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Maybe you've heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. You do know the point, the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan is that he was Samaritan. That's the punchline. That's the punch in the nose of that whole story is that it's the Samaritan who's good, not the Levite or the priest. It's this person you guys hate. That's Jesus's gold star example of being a compassionate person. That's the point of it. The Jews and these new Jewish Christians, Peter and John, they did not like Samaritans. In fact, in Luke, John had previously, the same John who has just now gone to Samaria with Peter to pray for the Samaritans, this same John had asked Jesus in Luke 9, he said, hey Jesus, do you want me to call, call down fire on the Samaritans right now? <laughs> he seriously was like, Jesus, I know I'm one of your 12 disciples. I'm just checking. They're being a little unhospitable. Would you like me to call down fire on them? And Jesus is like, no. He's like, okay, just, just checking, because I want to. Like, that's, John, that's John's heart. He's like, because I'm really wanting to, so I just wanted to see if maybe he might have a weak moment, Jesus, and be like, sure, go ahead. This is the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. So this is an exceptional and a unique situation. And here's what I want to say to you. God could have given the full Holy Spirit to the Samaritan Christians before Peter and John showed up. Of course he could. Peter and John could have never even come. I think God wanted the Jerusalem church leaders to have this unforgettable spiritual connection 
with their new Samaritan brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. That's what's going on here. That's why the delay, let me read you this quote from Michael Green. The delay is a divine veto on schism in the infant church. A schism that could have slipped almost unnoticed into the Christian fellowship as converts from the two sides of the Samaritan curtain found Christ without finding each other. So God did something unique. God did something exceptional here to accomplish an additional and very important goal. And you know what it is, right? You know, right? Unity. True Christian faith is present when there is real power and when there is unexpected partnership through the Spirit. We, too, should go the extra mile for this unexpected partnership through the Spirit. Peter went the extra mile. Peter walked a hundred miles to be part of this unexpected partnership through the Spirit. John overcame his hate for Samaritans. God went the extra mile by reordering the normal theological schedule. How will we go the extra mile? Maybe it's becoming a more committed partner at your local church. Because maybe the reason you haven't is because no one's really like you. But hey, one of the signs that true Christian faith is present is an unexpected partnership through the Spirit. Maybe it's investing in a relationship with a Christian that God has placed right beside you, but that you don't feel you have that much in common with outside of Jesus. True Christian faith is present when there is unexpected partnership through the Spirit. We must not just find Christ, find each other. Three signs of Christian faith. The true Christian faith is present. Real power, unexpected partnership, and now third and last, faith and repentance. True Christian faith is present when there is faith and repentance, verses 18 through 25. And so here I want to talk about another question. I want to ask this question. Was true Christian faith present in Celebrity Simon the Magician? What do you think? Well, verse 18 through 25 is going to challenge us about this, cause us to think and wrestle with whether he really was a Christian or not. I'm not sure if we could really say that it's conclusive. Maybe you'll think that it is, and that's fine. Let me tell you, before we read these verses, what others have said. One pastor, Kevin DeYoung, on Simon's faith, says, well, we see that Simon perceived the gospel to be true. That's one thing he did. We see that he confessed the gospel to be true through baptism. And we see also that he could not deny himself. That's fair. We're going to see that in these verses for sure. I've already read them to you. We'll read them again. Another person says that Luke portrays Simon as not converted, only strongly impressed with the apparent miracle-working power of Philip and Peter. Dante, who wrote uh, the literary work Dante's Inferno, he places Simon in the eighth circle of hell. 
So a lot of people were kind of down on Simon. Eusebius, the first Christian church historian, says that Simon is the author of all heresy. That's not like a really good reputation. Vocabulary has not been kind to Simon. If you look up simony in the dictionary, you know what you'll find? Using money to buy office or privileges. So he kind of founded that, I guess. Um, John Calvin takes a more kind and middle position, which I think might surprise some of you, which you do need to probably be challenged with. He says, I take a middle position between faith and mere pretense. Speaking of Simon. But what do we really see here? I actually think it would be helpful to look at these verses and think about what Luke is telling us about Simon's conversion to Christ. Is it true? So let's look. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Okay. So he offered Peter and John money. What? Okay. Could he have been a true Christian and done this? Just maybe been misled or maybe just had some sort of unsanctified, unsort of Christianized ambitions, maybe? He offered them money so that he could have that same power to lay hands on people and to see those people receive the Spirit. It seems, though, that Luke is portraying Simon as he wants to be a Simon-centered Christian, not a Christ-centered Christian. He wants to still be Simon, but just be on Team Jesus. That's what it seems. Verse 20, look at verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He's like, Simon, do you understand grace at all? This is not for sale. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's unmerited favor. You cannot buy favor from God. He says, may your money perish with you. The word for perish here is like basically the word hell. Matthew 7.13 says, wide is the gate that leads to, and that's the word, destruction. Peter basically says, Simon, you're on the way to hell. Verse 21, look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter says, when he says, you have no lot in this matter, it's almost like by Peter choosing to use that word, you can almost hear him implying, Simon, you're not one of God's people. You're not one of the 12 tribes who received their inheritance in the promised land by lot. You don't have a lot in this matter. It's interesting. I think we see what Peter's perspective was. Don't you love how seeker-sensitive Peter is? I mean, Peter's just like such a nice pastor, you know? He's, you know, it's like, why can't you just be a little more pastoral, Peter? Just, just, why can't you just see, focus on the positives? Like Simon, he's, he could be doing anything. He's a celebrity, but he decided to hang out with Philip, get baptized. Like, why can't we just look over the lack of him changing at all and the total greed in his heart and like still have him share his testimony on Easter, Peter? Like, come on. Yeah, 
Peter doesn't care. He cares, actually, about Simon. Verse 21, now look at verse 22. He says, repent. Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Still in bondage to sin. The gospel has not broken him free. Peter in verse 21 tells Simon that his heart is not right before God. He commands him in verse 24 to pray to the Lord. And what does Simon do in response to that command? He doesn't pray. He asks Peter to pray. Interesting. Indicating maybe no real personal relationship with the Lord. Unable to pray. Now, we want to go gentle on that. I mean, not everyone's going to be like, all right, let me pray right in front of the Apostle Peter right now. But couldn't pray. He's like, Peter, you pray for him. You know what's interesting too? Simon in verse 24 seems only concerned that bad things would not happen to him and does not seem at all concerned about having a truly right relationship with the Lord and being forgiven and changed. And that's actually really important because you know there is a difference, and the Bible talks about this difference, between worldly regret and godly sorrow. Let me show you a verse, 2 Corinthians 7. It says in verse 10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Just being sorry that bad consequences are coming or just wanting Peter to pray for me so that these bad things won't happen is not godly sorrow where a person is genuinely remorseful at what their sin has done to their relationship with the Lord. Here's probably my biggest observation about Simon, and it comes from verse 22, where Peter commands, and it is in the imperative grammatical tense, he commands Simon to repent. So far, we only learn from these verses that Simon has believed. Faith without repentance, it's not true Christian faith. True Christian faith is present when there is faith and repentance. What is repentance? It's a change of direction. It's a U-turn on the road of life. It literally means to change your mind about your sin. To change your attitude, your actions, and your minds about your sin. Repentance. To turn around. It doesn't seem that Simon repented. But the Bible is clear, regardless of what Simon did, the Bible is clear for us that the response we are to have to the Word of God, to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be saved is one of faith and repentance. True Christian faith is present when there is real power, when there is unexpected partnership through the Spirit and when there is faith 
and repentance. How do we know when true Christian faith is present? By these signs. And so as we conclude, I think it would be safe for us to observe that it did not go super well for the first Christian celebrity. And I don't think Peter, John, or many of us are all that surprised. And I don't want to diss on Christian celebrities at all. There's nothing wrong with influence. May God give more of it to good Christians. And may the gospel reach those who already have it. There's nothing wrong with it. But the book of Acts is not a tabloid on celebrities. Luke does not seem to have as his top concern to tell us exactly what happened with Simon. And so we are left to our own conclusions. We are left not knowing for sure. But what we do know for sure is by telling us this story, Luke has issued a strong warning to you and to me and to the Christian church in every age that people can be fake and false Christians. And we must look for signs of true Christian faith. That people can believe some truth. People can get baptized. People can be with Christians all day as Philip and Simon were together. Self-deception is real. So we must be able to tell the signs. We must protect our own hearts from self-deception. We must guide and tell the truth to our most loved ones. We must guard our churches from fake and false Christianity as Peter so boldly does here in the early church. So bow with me. I want to close in prayer and 